Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Center for Japanese Studies and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Warren Stanislaus, PhD candidate at Oxford University and associate lecturer of global and transnational intellectual history at Rikyo University on the Black Lives Matter movement and Afro-Japanese cultural exchange. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Warren. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. So let's start off finding out a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your fields and how your interests brought you there? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a PhD uh, history candidate at the University of Oxford. Um, and my research interests are kind of looking at transnational and intellectual histories of modern Japan. So my PhD dissertation looks at political satire in the mid-late 19th century Japan, focusing on what I term as transnational networks of laughter that explores a dynamic group of artists and writers and journalists, so both Japanese and international, that collaborated and exchanged to produce humorous works that challenged ideas of Western civilization and imagined alternative visions of modernity. And so, yeah, that's my kind of core uh, PhD research and, and, and my day job. Um, and I guess to cover some of my other significant research interests, um, I also look at Afro-Asian intimacies and exchanges. Um, and I, I guess that's going to be the topic of, of today's discussion. And so I'm an associate lecturer at Nikkyo University's Global and Liberal Arts Department. And I'm currently in the middle of teaching a course on this very topic of Afro-Japanese pasts and futures. And so the course covers everything from um, black samurai in the 16th century, uh, Perry's black ships and black bodies, or an imagined transnational solidarity in the early 20th century, to more contemporary pop culture exchanges centered on music and fashion and, and anime. Um, and so uh, you probably know that uh, Japanese universities have uh, long terms and lots of contact hours, so 28 classes. So that gives me uh, plenty of time to cover this kind of 400 or so years. Yeah, this area of Afro-Japanese intimacies is often overlooked or marginalized within the field of Japanese studies. And so in compiling a syllabus and designing the course content, I've been working towards kind of remedying this gap um, alongside developing my own academic careers and skills. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at the moment. Sounds like really good cutting edge stuff. Let's begin with the Black Lives Matter movements. In June 2020, the top Japanese broadcaster NHK attempted to explain the Black Lives Matter movements through a segment on their Ima Wakata Sakai no Ima show, which translates to Now I Understand What's Going On in the World. Using racist characters and rough Japanese to portray African Americans, the video frames Black Lives Matter as a uniquely American problem, referring to demographic statistics to depict it as a movement against economic injustice in the States. To help improve our understanding of what's actually going on in the world, could you give us a brief overview of Black Lives Matter and address the issues in NHK's explanation? 
Yes. So I guess firstly, to cover the Black Lives uh, Matter movement and just to introduce it, um, it was founded in 2013 in the United States uh, in response to the acquittal of the police officer that fatally shot a 17-year-old boy, Trayvon Martin. And so directly, this movement is about ending police brutality that disproportionately affects Black people or African Americans in the United States. And it's also part of a much longer civil rights struggle for equality and justice, um, as institutional racism has meant that the law has been applied unevenly. Um, and so the movement is also understood more broadly as a struggle against institutional racism that has such outcomes as the mass incarceration of black male populations in, in the United States. So I guess my use of the word broad is quite key here as the Black Lives Matter is a decentralized um, transnational movement and much like the hashtag Me Too and its viral nature has meant that it means a lot of different things to different people. And so it can mean uh, various issues from, I guess, the pol police brutality that I just mentioned or I think it can be extended to issues of unconscious bias or lack of uh, black representation in private and public organizations. Um, so yeah, I guess a key question then to consider is how has the Black Lives Matter movement been received and adapted to a Japanese uh, context? And that kind of goes to the uh, main thrust of your, of your question. And yeah, it's kind of focusing firstly on the NHK's Sekai Noima uh, TV show and its depiction of uh, black stereotypes and, and caricatures to explain the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder. So yeah, I guess the, it, within this animation, the central figure um, was depicted as kind of physically imposing, bearing his... Uh, ripped muscles and yeah just kind of played on tropes of this uh, black hyperphysicality or the angry black man and kind of looking at the characters in the background um, the other I guess protesters they were trying to depict that they were variously looting or kind of angrily stomping or strumming on a guitar so yeah I mean it was kind of careless in its depiction of uh, of the protesters, but also careless in the explanations as well, which is what I wanted to go on to next, is that I guess firstly they failed to show the ethnic diversity of the protesters um, and it, the content, it was really mainly talking about issues of economic inequality, in the United States rather than uh, discussing police brutality. And yeah, just ultimately the protesters were made to be out to be a, a riotous mob. Um, so yeah, the show's distasteful um, presentation was picked up by the international media um, quite very quickly. Um, and that really caused an uproar and even the American embassy had to come out and release an, an official statement to condemn it. And yeah, following that, NHK had to come out and, and offer an apology.
So, yeah, just kind of thinking about the significance of this specific uh, NHK show, I think what it really did was kind of brought the realities of um, racism and specifically in this case, kind of the anti-black uh, stereotypes and representations as something that maybe hit home a little to Japan because oftentimes racism um, is seen as a, or Jinshu Sabetsu in Japanese is seen as this uniquely foreign problem and it kind of fits into this kind of Nihonjinron discourse that Japan is this imagined as this homogenous country in opposition to a more multi-racial uh, West. And so Japan doesn't have the same problems is how it's um, often discussed. But what um, this Sekai no Ima or NHK show uh, served to um, you know, show is in fact that Japan has its own issues with anti-black stereotypical representations and and what a lot of people have done from that is that they've linked it to other recent incidents of kind of Japanese comedians, such as uh, I think it was Masatoshi Hamada performing in blackface to mimic Eddie Murphy from Beverly Hills over uh, the New Year's. Um, or, for example, there were some like trolls on Japanese social media questioning the Japaneseness of um, different um, mixed black Japanese celebrities such as um, Miss Universe Ariana Miyamoto or um, uh, Naomi Osaka. So yeah, I, th I think this has been the NHK show or this um, depiction within um, the Sekai no Ima really brought, some, brought it uh, home to Japan that this is something that impacts Japan uh, to a certain extent as well. So you would say it's opened up discussion on how race is perceived in uh, Japan? Yes, I, I, I definitely would say that to a certain extent, but I would mention that I think a lot of the discussions around it, I think are ultimately in the, or mainly discussed in the foreign media. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, would probably, I would argue that potentially one of the reasons why is that this maybe fits into kind of a whole... Um, kind of international uh, racism blaming game and um, to a certain extent kind of diverting attention um, away from internal issues. And I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily suggesting that um, in the case of the international, international media, it's so um, strategic as that. Um, but I think this is something that we often see, not just with Japan and Japan saying that, well, this isn't an internal issue, this is a foreign issue. Um, but for example, in the UK, often... Um, racism is seen as something that happens overseas. So, well, America is a lot worse than the UK or European uh, countries are a lot worse. And so it often kind of uh, diverts away from um, internal issues. And so mm. potentially foreign media's attention on Japan could also be read within that context as well. And it seems to be a trend, though, that uh, some Japanese media comes out, which shows a rather backwards view of race and the whole world reacts and then the company responsible has to apologize and withdraw it but it, it doesn't <laughs> seem to be a sense of understanding why the whole world is an uproar over their depiction of race so do you feel like in this case the nhk understands where it went wrong or is it just reacting to this international furore yeah that's a really good question 
Um, I think initially it was um, just a reaction. Um, but what I, I think is really interesting to um, start to see in the shift in the discourse in Japan, and just to give NHK as an example, is that now because of the international media tension being placed on Japan, they've had to respond not just in the form of apologies, but you're also starting to see them produce new shows that directly deals with this issue of, um, for example, the experience of black people in Japan and the types of unconscious biases that they receive. Um, I think uh, a really good example of this was on um, Ohio Nippon, which is a TV show on NHK, uh, a morning show. And they, um, this was uh, led by mixed black Japanese um, and they talked about their experiences of um, growing up in Japan and the types of um, stereotypes that they have to potentially deal with uh, or unconscious biases, um, especially related to issues of colorism and things like that. Um, and so I just found that kind of a, a really interesting shift and quite a positive move from um, NHK um, kind of quickly responding to this and, uh, and the um, international uh, media um, pressure to a certain extent. I guess this old concept of the foreign pressure or the gaiatsu, which has been talked about in more of an international relations context. Um, but yeah, I, I guess one just to just one more point on that. I think not just kind of focusing on the traditional media. What is really fascinating is within the um, I guess new media within Japan. Um, so. Uh, I mean, it's not only Japanese media companies, but let's say, for example, new media, I would think of like Huffington Post um, or BuzzFeed, uh, these types of uh, companies. If you kind of look at uh, the, types of con the type of content they are producing, they seem to kind of pick up on these issues, um, kind of more global issues surrounding kind of race or social justice issues. And in this case, Black Lives Matter. If you want to kind of get information about the way um, Japan is experiencing it and dealing with it. I think the new media is really the place to look into, and I think that's really an interesting development. Yeah, I think we've established that Black Lives Matter is certainly a transnational movement, and in a Japanese context, we've seen uh, Black Lives Matter protests that were held in multiple cities across Japan in June and were encouraged by such iconic figures against racial injustice in Japan as the uh, tennis player Naomi Osaka and author Bay McNeil. Could you contextualize for us the significance of Black Lives Matter in Japan? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you rightly pointed out, the Black Lives Matter marches were uh, across kind of different Japanese cities. Um, and I think the first thing to kind of identify is that they were kind of, uh, they were named as marches um, rather than protest, I guess, in accordance with uh, local, local laws. Um, and so for the Tokyo March, you had over 3,000 people turn out. And I think in the Osaka March, it was over 1,000. And these were kind of like meticulously organized um, marches around, um, for example, in Tokyo, which I was fortunate to be able to uh, attend. Um, it was a march from Yoyogi Park, and then um, it went through 
like central Shibuya area around Scramble Crossing, and then back through Harajuku, um, kind of going along the Meiji Dori and then ending up in Yoyogi Park again. Um, and I guess firstly, I just want to kind of explain about um, the protest itself, because I, I mean, just, I guess, being fortunate enough to attend it, there was certain interesting things that I noticed there, if, if that's, that's um, okay yeah. as a kind of <laughs> entry point. So yeah, I think the most striking thing um, is the about the protests itself is that um, was the racial diversity of it. Um, I think it was mainly made up of Japan's or international community. Um, so there were Japanese participants, of course, and I think a lot of them potentially had more international exposure um, or were already interested in in, in these issues. Um, and of course, there was a, a a fair amount of the of Japan's kind of black uh, population. But because it's kind of smaller, the black population is smaller in Japan. Um, I think that was also reflected in the makeup of the participants as well. And so, ultimately, I think what was really interesting is that you found that a lot of the participants were um, mainly. Uh, uh, white and international part of the international community in Japan, and in terms of the, I guess the posters that they were um, holding up, and the different chants, um, it was interesting because they were kind of on kind of two levels. The one is that they reflected the um, global presentations of um, or global chants and posters. So people were saying like, "No justice, no peace." Um, but others were kind of more translated into a local context. So you started to see kind of like, um, in Japan, there is also racism. So like, Nihon ni mo sabetsu ga aru, different posters like that. Um, and so I guess that kind of starts to um, bring us to some of the key ways and kind of going back to your question, the key ways in which Black Lives Matter is having an impact on Japan. Um, and I would say that there are kind of three main ways, and I'll go into more depth about each one of them. But I think the first one would be uh, anti, kind of highlighting anti-blackness um, in Japan or anti-black stereotypes. Uh, the second one would be uh, thinking about racism in Japan more generally. Um, and the third one would be... Um, kind of Black Lives Matter being this catalyst and being used by uh, Japanese and especially young people to imagine a more global uh, future for Japan and kind of using Black Lives Matter to connect it to other social justice issues. Um, so yeah, the first one was kind of about this uh, highlighting of um, um, anti-blackness in Japan. Um, and so, yeah, just as I mentioned earlier, um, I mean, we've already kind of discussed about um, different issues of um, kind of stereotypes being presented in the media. Um, and also now you're starting to see the Japanese media, as I mentioned, like NHK respond by kind of directly addressing this and trying to talk about it and platform some mixed black Japanese to talk about their experience or kind of like um, black residents in Japan to talk about their experiences as well. Um, I, I think the other way is that a lot of um, global brands and corporations that are, have offices in Japan are 
kind of really being pushed to think about how they can um, kind of respond in line with kind of their more um, global headquarter directives and how to apply that to a Japanese context. So what I find is interesting is that you're seeing a lot of um, global corporations in Japan um, now having to kind of like um, hire uh, diversity and inclusion consultants for kind of like crisis aversion purposes. And yeah, so I think that's really the first thing that is kind of, it's about highlighting uh, anti-black representations in Japan. And I think this has the biggest implications for the way Japan sees itself into relation to mixed uh, black Japanese um, figures such as Naomi Osaka and Asuka Cambridge and uh, Anthony and Ariana Miyamoto and Yui Hachimura have all become kind of high-profile figures um, as mixed black Japanese. And uh, I think within their cases, a lot of the types of discussions that kind of Black Lives Matter has shifted into in a Japanese context is focusing on how they may experience um, colorism um, which I guess refers to a preference for lighter skin over darker skin. Um, and also some of those stereotypes that we talked about earlier, um, for example, um, blackness being associated with kind of hyperphysicality um, and kind of an em- blackness being imagined as kind of... Um, excelling in spheres of which aren't intellectual but are more physical i.e like sports and um entertainment music uh and different things like that and 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 modeling and so i think it's also kind of critical to mention here i don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the high profile um half black um half japanese or mixed black japanese celebrities have gained recognition within that space of not necessarily kind of the intellectual spheres, but more kind of highlighting their physicality. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that's something that's unique to Japan. I think that's kind of more more of a, a, a global issue. Mm. Um, and I guess just to cover um, the other two points. So, yeah, the I think the second way is that um, Black Lives Matter in Japan has been received as a way of, as some of the posters said about like Japan also has racism. It's not just about um, anti-black racism, but it's also about thinking about um, some of the other issues related to Japan's historical minorities or indigenous communities, such as the Zainichi Koreans or Ainu. And then the final um, thing that I would look at, and this is something that um, I just really find quite fascinating is the way um, kind of Japanese youth have picked up on this um, Black Lives Matter movement is a way, and it's, I think it's a lot of um, Japanese youth that have more international exposure or kind of um, have a certain grasp of English, which allows them to engage with foreign media. But you find that um, they are using, kind of setting up, Japanese youth setting up Instagram groups. Um, Just to give some examples, there's the Blossom Project, which has um, like over 30,000 followers. And then um, 
uh, No Youth No Japan Instagram account has uh, 48,000 followers or something like that. And a lot of these uh, Instagram accounts kind of started off focusing on uh, issues of Black Lives Matter um, and kind of produce these really um, kind of like tech savvy and um, aesthetically pleasing infographics to um, that they're easily shareable and um, kind of easy to understand. And, but then they've kind of shifted into other issues. Um, so whether um, issues of gender or sexuality in Japan, or also just talking about um, other social justice issues globally. Um, and a lot of these are kind of like bilingual, so they're in Japanese and English. And so I think that's another really key way that Japan has been, has received and adapted this Black Lives Matter movement. It's kind of an opportunity for Japanese youth to um, kind of grasp onto it and then imagine a new Japan that is much more um, globally connected and, and engaged with some of these um, issues. And the way that they're doing that is through the platforms that they have access to, the platforms that they own. So I mentioned earlier the new media, and in this case, social media. Um, and I guess this is just something that reflects kind of more global trends as well. Yeah, you said that you mentioned earlier about the diversity of Japanese society, which gets caught up in this. Japan's supposed homogeneity, its Japanese-ness or Nihonjin-ron, as you said earlier, has become a major obstacle in the acknowledgments and social equality of those living in Japan who are not Yamato Japanese. This has ironically created a spectrum of racist attitudes from discrimination against indigenous Japanese, such as the Ainu of Hokkaido or Okinawans, to so-called positive racism towards white foreigners, who you've referred to before as the familiar foreigner, and the wide grey area of Hafu mixed-race Japanese, from Zenichi Koreans to Afro-Japanese. How have these attitudes come about, and how are they being challenged today? And uh, finally, do you think there's room for a shared discourse between these minority communities in diversifying Japanese image? Yeah, that's a really um, important question. Um, I think it's a really big question. I don't know yes. how much I'll, I'll be able to respond to. Um, but um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, you, you talked about, is there room for a shared discourse between these minority communities? Um, and as I already pointed out, kind of one of the key ways that Black Lives Matter has been received in Japan is by extending it to other issues of different communities within Japan and also kind of other social justice issues. So, yeah, just to kind of think about, is there room for this um, shared discourse or this solidarity among different uh, minority communities or indigenous communities within Japan and also imagining in, an, in imagining a new Japan as well, which is much more... Um, diverse and goes beyond this myth of um, homogeneity. So, for example, John Russell, Professor John Russell at uh, Gifu University has really um, done some good research on representations of blackness in Japan, but he's also kind of um, now looking at Black Lives Matter. And I think one of the fascinating things that he points out in a recent paper he did uh, for the Japan Focus is he showed how a lot of the comments online, so kind of the far-right trolling on social media towards um, black people in relation to Black Lives Matter or mixed black Japanese, often 
he says that it quickly descends into racist rants directed towards um, especially Koreans and, and, and Zainichi Koreans. And I find that really fascinating that um, there's kind of this alignment between um, blackness and, and um, Koreans in, uh, in the, from the Japanese um, perspective. Obviously, this is kind of like a far-right um, minority and extend that to the population as a whole at all. But I think because of this um, shared oppression, I guess you can call it, there's also a room for shared interests there or kind of imagining kind of shared solidarity. I think another way kind of looking back further into history, um, when kind of thinking about the Meiji period, when Perry brought over his black ships as a sign of kind of America's or, or the West technological strength, but also he brought over black bodies as a sign of physical strength that he is able to kind of manipulate and order um, and also within um, Perry's black ships, they had kind of these minstrel performances with people doing blackface and so kind of kind of laughing um, and, and satirizing so-called inferior black people. And so, yeah, there's kind of this historical context as well for these anti-black stereotypes within uh, Japan. But also during the same period, if you kind of look at some of the um, ways that Japan started to um, imagine itself and especially aspire to, to becoming more like the West in its civilization and enlightenment project, if you, I guess if you look at Yokohama, um, woodblock prints is, is always a great example of kind of Japan's new aspirations towards Western civilization. There's lots of focus on kind of these elaborate international parties um, in the Lokumeikan, um, yeah, and just kind of showing Japan's um, kind of alignment with Europe and the United States, and um, yet kind of distinctly absent from these prints is the Chinese residents, for example, that um, were, for example, workers and and or cooks and perform different roles within the Yokohama uh, treaty port. And so they were this like invisible, invisible majority. And so again, I think these types of areas kind of recovering this historical record could be an important way for reimagining um, how Japan sees itself, but also a way for these other minority groups to kind of form some idea of um, shared solidarity as well. And just kind of as a last point from this, I think within what we're seeing within um, this year, 2020, with COVID-19 and especially racism and stereotypes towards um, Asians across the world. Uh, I mean, for example, most recently, um, there was an anti-Japanese incident in New York um, where the uh, Japanese musician um, Tada Taka Unno, he was um, attacked um, for being um, for being Asian, and, uh, and I think especially in this time, I, I think that those types of incidents may also trigger some people in uh, people in Japan to see that oh yeah, this 
these issues of racism can affect us all as well. And so that's another potential room for um, gaining a sense of um, solidarity as well. Going on from this idea of international understanding of racism and race at large, in recent years, we've seen certain mixed race Japanese figures come to the fore, challenging what it means to be Japanese. Uh, we've already mentioned Naomi Osaka, and I believe you mentioned the 2015 Miss Universe Japan winner, Ariana Miyamoto. Um, how are these celebrities reconciled as representatives of Japan, both domestically and internationally? Yeah, I think this kind of touches on an area that an area that um, I kind of hinted towards earlier as well, but I think they are being accepted more readily as representatives of Japan on a global stage, um, especially within sports. And I think that's something which we should really focus on, that mixed black Japanese are expected to excel in the sphere of sports. Um, and so it's potentially easier, I believe, for um, Japan to then accept them on a global stage as well, especially as they are, <laughs> for example, in the case of like Naomi Osaka, to being very successful. <laughs> and it's something to kind of get behind and cheer. And so that's part of it as well. But, but I, I mentioned this about the focus on kind of sports being potentially an easier sphere to for them to be reconciled within the the narrative of Japaneseness is that I would imagine that in areas of representing in Japan when it's more focused on let's say traditional cultural spheres where race and ethnicity is more closely tied to the performance and the imagined aesthetic of those specific traditional kind of cultural practices I think it would be less easily or readily accepted amongst the broader population. Um, and I think that's why there was so much uproar surrounding the 2015 Miss Universe Japan winner, Ariana Miyamoto, because, I mean, representing Japan on this international scale in a beauty competition, she doesn't necessarily represent the traditional Pearl of the East or Toyo no Shinju or Bihaku or the, I guess, the beautiful white-skinned... Um, <laughs> Uh, image that um, Japan has come to see itself in. And so, yeah, I think my my guess in terms of acceptance would be that those kind of um, spheres where race and ethnicity is a part of the performance or imagined as part of the performance as well would be a lot harder to accept rather than, for example, uh, let's say tennis or running, which in the case of like Naomi Osaka or Cambridge Asuka, or basketball in the case of Rui Hachimura, we've already seen black people excel on a global stage. We've had precedent for that before. And so this is kind of a way for Japan to kind of be a part of that and um, show that um, Japan can also excel as well. And so potentially it's easier for, to get behind some of the, uh, the mixed black Japanese in, within those contexts as well. Mm. I see what you're saying about how it could be more difficult for uh, mixed Japanese to demonstrate or represent traditional Japanese arts. But one area where this is sort of being 
developed is sumo. I believe there's a lot of non-Japanese sumo mm. wrestlers coming through and dominating the sports. I think mostly from Mongolia, so still Asian, mm-hmm. but there are also Brazilian sumo wrestlers coming in to the fore as well. Um, and that that's a very protected area of traditional Japanese heritage. So there seems to be an interesting contrast. Yeah. Think about, yeah. About that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a good question. I, I would um, I, I would just say it would be interesting to see uh, uh, black or mixed black uh, black sumo and see how that's that's received. That's, it's hard to say to be honest. Um, but I think you do you do point out a really good point that within sumo, something that is very tied to Japanese history and and cultural traditions that. Even within that space, I guess it would have been hard to accept um, different likishi. And so, yeah, I think that, as you point out, that could be a really um, good example for imagining a new Japan. I think rugby would probably be the other one that has um, really come to the fore in Japan in terms of uh, Japanese on a kind of really wide national scale being able to accept an image of diversity, but obviously being kind of punching above your weight and being successful in those spheres, especially on a global level. Think back to the um, Japan game against uh, South Africa, where they um, won some years ago. I think I think those obviously um, facilitate in kind of acceptance is kind of the success. But yeah, just um, I think sports, not just in Japan, and I think this is where um, just kind of thinking about... Um, Japanese studies more general, what using Japan to highlight other kind of more global phenomena is that kind of sports has always been a way that minorities have been able to struggle and fight and show that they can do something just as good as anyone else. I'm thinking like, um, for example, like Muhammad Ali and uh, different individuals like that, or within the UK, you can look at um, kind of historically football players. And so, yeah, I mean, sumo is potentially just another example of that. And sports is always a a great way to see, um, uh, imagine a a new future for countries. And as you said, it still fits into this idea of hyperphysicality um, associated mm. with black people around the world. Yeah. 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 Um, to, well, it's, it's been a very engaging session. Thank you for all your answers so far. I have one final question for you. You've written on shifting the narrative of being black in Japan, trying to seek a positive discourse juxtaposed to the dominant one of oppression and discrimination. Can you give some examples of how to speak more positively of the, of the black experience in Japan and what steps need to be taken to balance this narrative with the negative one? Mm. Yeah, th- thank you for highlighting that. It was, a, it was part of an article I wrote for um, Nippon.com about um, the black experience in Japan. I, I guess it wouldn't just be about necessarily kind of like positive versus negative, but I would say it's more about, I guess, showing the, the whole story. And I think that's really important. For example, within that specific article in the Nippon.com, I talked about how a lot of um, black people coming to Japan, especially from uh, Europe or America, um, so I guess Western nations, right? That 
their experiences here uh, often can be quite positive. Yes, there's certain areas where we receive kind of like unconscious bias and um, or kind of like stereotypes that everyone can dance and play sports and things like that. But I, I think ultimately it's a really fascinating to kind of point out that, for example, often foreigners in Japan, so regardless of um, race or ethnicity, will talk about how uh, Japanese people don't sit next to them on the trains. And this happens to black foreigners as well, but it's not necessarily because of their blackness. It's because of the fact that they are foreigners. And so there's this kind of weird sense of equality, right? Being kind of all clumped together as kind of these Western uh, foreigners and also kind of being clumped together as Western foreigners also means that I think you can kind of form relationships with other foreigners of different races and nationality because you have that, that shared experience of being marginalized as gaikokujin within Japan. And so again, it's kind of, um, yeah, building that kind of sense of, um, yeah, it's just that shared sense of marginality, which potentially in one's own country, whether it be the UK or Europe or the US, that same type of um, fluidity between kind of people of different backgrounds may not happen as much because there's not kind of that shared sense of identity there. And so I think that can really be quite a, a positive experience for many people. And so, yeah, that's just kind of one area that, that I point out. So, yeah, if, if anyone's interested, they can um, look at my article on nippon.com to learn more. But, but, yeah, just kind of thinking more broadly about um, the impact of kind of focusing on a lot of these areas of race and representation. Um, I think what that serves to do is that then it kind of hides or obscures areas where, for example, black populations and Japan have shown connections or exchange or um, have imagined solidarity. And, and those areas aren't often talked about in kind of popular media discussions um, because of this kind of over-focus on issues of race and representation. And I'm, I'm not downplaying the importance of them, of course. It's, it's, uh, of course, it's important to focus on or discuss how race and representation um, impacts relations. But I think it's also tr important to not let that um, obscure other areas, whether that be historical or contemporary, where um, kind of more positive exchanges or kind of interesting dynamics um, have occurred. And I think this is... Um, just kind of one point I really wanted to mention before um, we kind of conclude the podcast is that I think this is also important for thinking about the impact of Black Lives Matter on the field of Japanese studies as a whole. And I think this is Black Lives Matter has kind of brought to um, Japanese studies that uh, kind of an urgency that the field needs to kind of think about how issues of race and representation can impact academics as individuals, 
um, and pursuing their careers, and also the implications for the type of research that we are producing, whether certain aspects of Japan's connections with the world has either been hidden, or as I mentioned, we are focusing too much potentially or, or focusing to the detriment, detriment of other areas on um, kind of race and representation. So, yeah, I think just kind of looking to the United States, I think this has kind of really been highlighted there. There was a petition organized by uh, different scholars, and it was a petition sent to the Association for Asian Studies, and it kind of focused on talking about a commitment to nurturing a future generation of black scholars of Asia, and also highlighting areas of, or the academic field of um, Afro-Asia as well, um, as something of importance. And this um, petition gained over 1,400 signatures, and it was followed up with a roundtable organized by the AA. S, um, and so they've kind of really um, committed to kind of trying to enrich the field um, as a whole. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I think this is, um, I think it's really important to um, kind of look at Afro-Japanese interactions beyond race and representation. I think that's one of the big kind of messages that I would have as well. And it's something that I'm currently kind of doing um, kind of research on and completing a paper on at the moment is looking at the popularity of um, Japanese pop cultural forms among um, African diaspora populations in the US and the UK and how black populations have appropriated or recontextualized Japanese sources for their own purposes. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can do, uh, once that's published somewhere, fingers crossed, I can come back and do another episode or some talk about that as well and share my findings on that. We would love to have you, have you back, definitely. And hopefully some of our listeners will take on the challenge. Thank you for illuminating this underexplored side of Japanese studies for us, Warren. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. You can find a link to Warren's website in the description below. Join us next week and we'll be in a timely discussion with Andrea D'Antoni, Associate Professor of International Relations at Litsumeikan University, on the relationship between hauntings and discriminated histories. Thank you for listening.